This morning, I'm going to continue in a sermon series that I have been doing. This is the third week in the sermon series entitled Justice, looking at what the Bible has to say about the subject of justice and how to evaluate the cultural messages that are all around us. I'm trying to go slowly through this. I'm not trying to bite off more than I can chew in any one sermon. And so if you feel like I'm not getting to things, don't worry. Just be patient. I will get there. Um, but I'm trying to take it slowly and do a comprehensive uh, view of this. And each week I've begun with three preliminary statements before I dive into the topic. First preliminary statement is that this is not meant to be a political sermon series. It's not meant to be a social science lecture. I'm trying to stay in my lane as a pastor and focus much more on what the Bible has to say uh, and how pastorally I can help you to follow God, to know him better, to love your neighbor. Okay. Of course, it's going to touch on politics and social science, but that's not my main focus. Secondly, I recognize that when you talk about justice, that it is a dangerous subject these days, that there's many things that you can say and topics you can touch upon um, that can get people very upset out in the world and even in the church. I want to encourage us as the church to set the example of speaking the truth in love. Amen? Amen. That means that if you disagree with something I say, if you have a problem, if you think I'm missing the boat on something, that is okay. That is always the, uh, it's always a chance, you know, that I don't know everything. Um, and I would encourage you to come and talk to me, to send me an email, to call me up and say, hey, have you considered this? Maybe you could say this a little differently or consider this perspective. That is fine, but just please do it speaking the truth in love. And thirdly, uh, my goal in this series is not about wagging our finger at the world. My goal in this series is to reflect a mirror on ourselves as the church, as God's people, to look at his word and say, how are we as God's people failing to live up to what God has called us to do? Okay, so it's primarily not about the people out there. It's about us and taking a hard look at ourselves and whether or not we're living up to what God has called us to be and do as his church. So having said that, let me begin with a word of prayer. Lord, I do ask for your help. I offer up to you my meager abilities and pray, God, that you would take the gap between what I have to offer and what you can do and just fill that with your spirit preparing hearts in this room and online to hear from you, to be transformed by you, God. May everything that is be done this morning and everything that is said this morning bring honor and glory to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me do a quick look back at the last two weeks. In the first week, I began with God the Creator talking about how we are created, designed people and how in this world, in this culture, as the culture moves away from belief in a creator. We're moving more and more towards a belief that you can kind of create and design yourself and be whoever it is you want to be. And that you look inside, you figure out what it is that you believe, then you give expression to that and everyone is supposed to affirm and applaud whatever it is that you believe on the inside. That is more and more the culture that we live in according to the culture, uh, but in opposition to the Bible where it says we are created beings designed by God and that we find life to the fullest when we submit to the design that he has put on us. And then secondly, last week I looked at uh, how we're all created in the image of God. Why does any life matter? Not because we look to nature, not because there's laws on the books. Every life matters because every life is created in the image of God. And so our life matters and we look out there and we love each person and create them, I'm sorry, treat them with dignity because they are each made in the image of God. Well, this morning I want to address the very important question of what is wrong with the world, right? What is wrong with the world? I mean, maybe you look out the world and you think everything's great, 
most of us, I'm assuming, look out the world and you say, what is going on with the world? Whether it's natural disasters happening all the time or the conflicts we see, the wars. Sometimes we don't have to look past our own mirrors, our own families to say, what is wrong? What is going on here? It's a pretty important question because if you're going to talk about justice and injustice, then you have to have some concept of how the world is meant to be, what justice, what goodness, what the right kind of world looks like. So we can say, what's right, what's wrong? How do we fix what's wrong? It's a pretty important question. I mean, those of you who have ever been to a doctor, you know how important the correct diagnosis is, right? I know 10 years or so ago, I was having a lot of leg pain. I couldn't straighten out my leg. And the first doctor I went to said, oh, it's muscular, gave me some stretching exercises. And he was completely wrong. It was a nerve damage from my back. And trying to stretch it was only making it worse, that he needed to deal with the back the spine, not with muscle, muscles in the leg. And often that's what happens. If you're diagnosing what's wrong with the world wrongly, then you're going to give the wrong prescription and you're going to make things worse. So this morning, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about what is wrong with this world. You know, I don't know what messages you're hearing out there in the world, but there's all kinds of messages out there about what is wrong with the world. Some people might try to convince you that it's a lack of education, that if we just educated people more, then we'd find some sort of harmony. There's others shouting out that the problem with the world is racism. You know, if we could just get rid of racism, everything will be fine. The problem with the world is politics, you know, bad politicians, bad political groups, bad leaders. And if we could just get them out of the way, then everything will be fine. There's a lot of opinions out there about what is wrong with the world. I mean, if you listened to last week's sermon, you remember I even cited the Nazi party and how they said the problem with the world is that we are not living according to the natural selection laws of evolution, that we need to exterminate these inferior life forms. That's what's wrong with the world. Again, there's a lot of prescriptions out there that aren't necessarily good prescriptions for the world. So we're going to look at the story of the fall in Genesis 3, and admittedly, This is a story that causes many to scoff, right? You read it and you're like, wait, a talking snake, you know, like Adam and Eve and all this stuff. I I admit up front, this is the kind of story that many people look at and shake their heads. But I want to encourage you this morning just to have an open mind and to read it and to consider how this is a masterful treatment on what is wrong with the world and how to fix it. So I'm going to read the entire chapter of Genesis 3, 1 through 24. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any trees in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? 
The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. So what is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? In this story, we have the serpent representing Satan or inhabited by Satan, essentially tempting and tricking human beings to distrust God. So did God really say, is that really what God meant? To try to convince them that God is not good, that God cannot be trusted, that there's something wrong with God's character, that he's holding out something good from you. And he succeeds in tricking them, convincing them that God is not good. And so they go and they eat of the fruit. They distrust God's character. They rebel against what God has said. Now, the word that the Bible uses for this, sin, again, one of those words that has fallen out of favor in our culture, understandably for some people, some people hear that and they they immediately think of how it's been used as a weapon against people, calling them sinners, labeling them sinners as if we are not. And so understandably, some people have a reaction to this. Others, maybe they just don't like it because it seems so negative, you know, that we're all about self-esteem and building people up and this concept of sin seems to tear people down instead. But again, I want to encourage you this morning, keep an open mind if you have troubles with this word, keep an open mind and and consider how this is a pretty accurate diagnosis of what is wrong with the world. So there's three things I want to say about what sin is and then get into the effects of sin and and how to to deal with it. The first is this. There's a lot of, you know, there's the Eskimos have like, I don't know, 50 words for snow. Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, In the same way, it's like the Hebrews and the Greeks had like a lot of different words for sin. And so I'm going to just explain what sin is and give you some of the words that are used. The first is transgression or rebellion against God. This is where God says, don't eat the fruit of this tree. And then they eat the fruit of the tree. This is where God says, don't lie. And even though you know it's wrong to lie, you still lie, right? Even though you know it's wrong to steal, you still steal. That's one part of what sin is. It's just blatant rebellion, transgression against God's laws, against what's right. There's a few biblical Hebrew and Greek words. The first two are Hebrew words. The second two are Greek that convey this perspective. Pasha, 
a revolt, a refusal to submit to a rightful authority. Ma'al, breach of trust. Parabasis, transgression of a boundary. And parakoe, disobedience to a voice. So there's a many different words out there that try to get across this. That one part of what sin is is that you know what's right and you still choose to do what's wrong. Second thing, though, because this doesn't encapsulate all of sin. Second thing is this. It's just missing the mark, falling short of the standard. Maybe you've heard that there's an archery term. You know, one of these words for sin is an archery term. It just means missing the mark. You didn't get the bullseye. This is when God says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, amen, I'm going to go do that. And then you find that you just can't. Not because you're blatantly rebelling against God, just because you can't seem to reach that holy standard. You can't seem to follow through. I mean, put God's standards aside. Think of your own standards for yourself, right? How many of you have standards for yourself and you just, even though you're trying to reach that standard yourself, you just can't do it. You fall short again and again. That's what this element of sin is. Not just a, it's not a blatant rebellion. It's just, here's the standard and I just can't seem to measure up some of the words again for that. Chata, which means to miss the mark or deviate from the norm. Inaccuracy. Agnoema, the ignorance of what one ought to have known. Hetema, the diminishing of what should have been fully rendered. Hamartia, to miss the mark. Again, look at all the nuances out there, but again, they're all trying to get across. Here's what you should be doing as a human being, as a, someone created in the image of God, but you're falling short, you're missing the mark. But there's more to it than that. Sin is not just, I didn't measure up in my actions and my standards. It's also this. It's iniquity. It's crookedness. It's something that's wrong on the inside of you. That inside, even without having done anything, there's something that is just off. Something that is crooked. Something that is broken and twisted within us. That prevents us from achieving what it is that we want to do prevents us from fulfilling what God has created us to do. That even with our best of intentions, there's something inside of us that just is self-centered, incurably it seems, bent in towards ourselves, thinks that we're the center of the universe, thinks that everyone else should revolve their lives around us. There's something curved in on ourselves, something twisted and broken within us. Again, some of the words that are used there, ava or aval, which means bent or crooked, a lack of integrity, iniquity, and hamartia, the defective internal dimension of a person. Consider these passages, Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Right away, I'm sure you're seeing there's a huge chasm between what the Bible is saying here and what our culture is saying, you know? I'm sure you've all heard messages about just follow your heart. Your heart never lies, you know. And here he's saying, no, 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 no. Our heart is deceitful. There's something curved in on ourselves. There's something twisted about our desires. They're not pure. The answer is not found in just following your heart wherever it leads. Consider what Jesus said in Mark 7, 20 to 23. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. It's quite a list. All these evils come from within and make a man unclean. That's Jesus saying it's not about what's out there that makes you unclean. It's not about the unclean systems and other people that are corrupting you. 
even if there was no people out there, no systems, what's going on inside of you, what comes out of you, is making you unclean. There's something twisted, something broken in there. Romans 7, 18, Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I mean, those are sad, but those are hopeful words, I guess, when you read those. And you say, even Paul understood our predicament. That, you know what, even though I want to be this kind of man, this kind of woman, this kind of father or mother, husband, wife, employee, employer, this is, this is who I want to be. But despite my best efforts, I never seem to be able to measure up. It's not just rebellion, transgression of a law. It's not just that I can't measure up. It's that there's something inside of me that is twisted, that is broken. Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it this, put it this way. He said, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart profound words what's wrong with the world it's not looking out there and saying it's the democrats it's the republicans that's what's wrong with the world it's those leaders it's those people it's my parents it's my kids it's my spouse what's wrong with the world as it passes through every individual human heart the line through good and evil what is sin first of all it's transgression or rebellion against god's law it's god saying don't eat that fruit and then them eating the fruit. But secondly, it's even when we try, it's missing the mark, falling short of the standard. And then thirdly, it's something on the inside that needs to be dealt with, some impurity or crookedness that's got to be dealt with. It's not just if you just got your act together and just did everything right, you'd be fine. It's no, there's something on the inside that needs to be dealt with. So when we look at Genesis 3, we find there's four results of sin because things go horribly wrong very quickly. The first thing is this. It's alienation from God. The first result of this rebellion against God is alienation from God. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. What happens when sin enters the world? First thing is this alienation from God. Instead of this fellowship where they're just walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, whatever that means, they're hiding. There's this instinctive knowing that I'm guilty. I did something wrong. And there's this rift between them and God. And now all of us who follow in their footsteps experience that same alienation between God. It's not that close fellowship anymore. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. In this way, death came to all men because all sinned. That's the result. It's sin entered the world through one man, and now we all sin, and there's death as a result. Brokenness between us and God. Romans 8, 7 through 8. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. That's our mind, he says. He calls it a sinful mind that is hostile to God. There's this alienation. There's this rift between us and God. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 4, this is how bad it's gotten. The God of this age, that's referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
there is this chasm between us and God in our sinful mind and our natural state. And we're blind to God. We cannot see him. We cannot know him. We're headed to an eternity of separation from God if nothing intervenes. But that's not the only alienation that happens. There's also an alienation from ourselves. There's an internal alienation that happens. We're not whole. We're not, we don't have integrity anymore. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Look what enters the world right away. Shame and guilt. Right, right away they recognize, I'm guilty before a holy God. And then they feel shame and they cover themselves. Before it says they were naked and unashamed. That was their state. In every way, not just physically naked, but in every way I'm sure they were just themselves. And there was no shame and no guilt. And now there's shame and there's guilt. And they hide and they cover themselves. They're alienated from themselves already. Remember these two verses I just shared earlier. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Even our own hearts within us lie to us. Even our own minds trick us. We're not pure. We don't have integrity anymore. There's this alienation within us. I don't know what podcast, if you listen to a podcast, one of the podcasts I like to listen to is one called The Happiness Lab. It's by a woman uh, who's a professor at Yale University about the science of happiness. It's not a Christian podcast, but part of her introduction is always about, about how our minds lie to us, you know, from a scientific point of view that they trick us into thinking this is what's best for you when it's not. And I love how the findings always seem to you know, line up with the Bible. But the heart is deceitful. Our minds trick us. We're alienated from ourselves. Romans 7, 18 again. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Again, there's a message in our culture. Maybe you've heard the message, you know, I was born this way. Again, according to this, if this is real, if this is true, born this way is not a good idea and not a good excuse and not a good reason or motivation for anything. If we were born in sin, if our hearts and our desires are not pure, are not good for us, if our minds trick us into thinking this is what's going to bring us life when it doesn't, then just saying, well, this is my natural feelings, I'm going to follow them, is a bad idea. Our desires are not pure. We don't desire what will give us life. And even when we want to do what is good, we just fail again and again to live up. So, first of all, alienation from God. Secondly, there's alienation from ourselves. And then thirdly, there's alienation from each other that happens because of sin. Verse 11 to 13. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Already they're blaming each other. One of the things I do on the side when I'm not pastoring is I'm, I counsel. I do some counseling of people as well. And inevitably, you know, you try to prevent counseling, especially marriage counseling, from becoming a blame session. Because that tends to be where things go to if you don't stop and intervene and, and move it in a positive direction. It just becomes a blame session about who's the worst, you know? Who's the worst person? Who's the worst spouse? That I would be so much of a better person if it wasn't for her, right? And I wouldn't behave this way if it wasn't for him. 
It's his fault that I behave this way. It's her fault that I behave this way. You know, and as a counselor, trying to get people to take ownership for their side of the street, for their part, instead of blaming everything on the other person. But that's exactly what you see here from the very beginning. Immediately, there's this alienation from each other. What's wrong with me? She's what's wrong with me. He's what's wrong with me. I would not be this way if it were not for him, for her, for them, for my parents, my spouse, my teachers. And yes, we understand that each person affects everyone else. I'm not saying that everyone else is blameless at all. But I'm saying this is what happens, alienation from each other. We blame the government, we blame our leaders, we blame our churches, we blame others for our poor choices and bad behavior. And then see what happens in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Thank you very much, Adam and Eve. With pain you will give birth to children. And then he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Notice that part of the fall, he says, is going to be this conflict between the sexes. This power struggle between husband and wife. What was in the beginning a beautiful marriage becomes a power struggle. That's what sin does. Produces this alienation, this division hiding and blaming, fear and pride. And then the last alienation that happens is an alienation from nature. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So again, instead of harmony with nature, now it says it's going to be toil and sweat, thorns and thistles. That's what it's going to be like to work the fields, to care for this earth. There's going to be brokenness. The world is off kilter. Tornadoes and hurricanes and drought and all of this. Things just aren't right. They're not the way they're meant to be because sin has broken this world. Romans 8, 22, 23 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This creation is just groaning in pain, waiting for the day in which God makes all things new again. When we put this brokenness in the past and there's no more hurricanes and disasters and droughts and all of this, No more pandemics. But right now, there's alienation in the world. There's brokenness in the world because of sin. And we can't get back to Eden. We can't recover that natural state of innocence. Verse 21 again. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's our predicament. Yes, there's problems in the educational system. And yes, there's racism. And yes, there are political leaders who are corrupt. And yes, there's all kinds of things that you can point to out in the world and say, that's a problem, that's a problem, and that's a problem. But those are the symptoms of the problem. And if a doctor just deals with the symptoms, oh, your leg, you know, is not stretching. Let's do some muscular, you know, stretches. If the the doctor just deals with the symptoms, he's going to make things worse. And if 
our goal is just to deal with symptoms, it's not going to help. It's not going to make things better. Because what we need to deal with is the root of the problem, and the root of the problem is sin, this alienation from God. But there's hope. Even in the midst of Genesis 3, there's hope. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians call that the proto-evangelium, which is a fancy word that says the first gospel, the first preaching of the gospel right there. That you have Satan, the serpent here. It says, the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman. But he will crush your head. And right there in the midst of the fall, you already have this gospel message. That this seed of the woman, this descendant of Eve, some descendant to come in the future, is going to be in this battle with Satan, the serpent. And even though he's going to be wounded by Satan, he will crush Satan. He will crush and destroy evil forever. And Adam, maybe you had missed this in verse 20, after the fall, he says this, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. She's not named until after the fall. And he names her this hopeful name, Eve. She is the mother of the living. Not the mother of the dying, but the mother of the living because there is new life given through this gospel message, that the seed of the woman will destroy sin and evil once for all. The seed of the woman, of course, is Jesus. How do you deal with what's wrong with this world? You can try your hardest to reform the educational system, to fight poverty and all of that, and that's all good. Those are all good things. But the heart of the matter is sin. The heart of the matter is our alienation from God that has caused everything to be off kilter and broken. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came and he lived the perfect life that we could not live. And he died on the cross, a sacrificial death in our place to restore us who were alienated from God to a right relationship with God. And not only that, but to give us a new heart. Because remember, the problem is not just that we've done wrong and need to be forgiven. The problem is that we're twisted, we're broken, that there's something wrong with our hearts. There's something wrong in the inside that we need a new heart so that we can Live up to what God has called us to do. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. It's a great word that contrasts well with alienation, right? God's reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a powerful passage. This sin problem that we've rebelled and broken God's law, that we can't measure up to his standard, that we're broken and twisted on the inside, and that as a result, there's alienation in the world between us and God, between ourselves internally, between us and others, between us and nature. How are we going to deal with this problem? God says, I sent my son Jesus, 
who had no sin to become sin for you, for us, so that all who put their trust and faith in him will be the righteousness of God, will be right with God, rightly related, rightly related no longer alienated, right with God, and have a new heart, be a new creation, so that you can live out what God has called you to. Once again, when I look at the way the culture is trying to deal with the problems of the world, what tends to happen when I look at the solutions the culture offers is blaming other people. We got to find a scapegoat. We got to find someone to blame. They're the problem. The world is wrong, right? Usually it's politics. It's the Republicans. It's the Democrats. That's what's wrong. It's the far right. It's the far left. That's what's wrong with the world. If we could just get them out of power and get us in power, we'll solve everything, which we should have learned by now is foolish. Because sin is internal. It's not out there. And so every person who takes any form of leadership is still sinful on the inside. It's not just about better education, you know, if we just knew more. And it's certainly not about demonizing groups of people. The problem is immigrants. The problem is white people. The problem is religious people. The problem is any group of people. I mean, pay attention to what's going on out there in the world. And wherever you see people presenting the solution as they're what's wrong with the world, those people are what's wrong with the world. It's not us. Instead of recognizing what Paul said, there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. All means everyone. All means it cuts across every race, every political party, every ethnicity. All have sinned. We are all one common humanity descended from Adam in need of a Savior. And if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then there is no room for pride, for boasting, for looking down on anybody else, for saying they're the problem. Not me, I'm not the problem, they're the problem. Yes, I understand. For those who don't like the name sin, the word sin, they feel like it's this archaic word. It's a negative word. People have used it as a weapon. But for those of us who understand what it is, it means we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We all fall short of God's holy standard. And we all need a savior. And that savior is not going to be coming in the form of a political leader or any sort of human leader. We all need a Savior, and that Savior has been provided by God. It's Jesus Christ. He came to deal with the sin problem, the root problem of what's wrong with this world. He is where we put our hope. Not in the educational system, not in politics, not in any social science theories, not even in the church. There was a church leader named Bill Hybels, maybe you've heard of him, and he used to uh, do a leadership conference, and he always proclaimed, the local church is the hope of this world. And I always had a problem with that. I was like, ah, close, but, you know, I think Jesus is the hope of the world, not the local church. And then, unfortunately, Bill Hybels 
you know, got revealed for sin patterns that forced him out of leadership and then said, yeah, that's why the local church is not the hope of the world. It's, it's God. It's Jesus Christ. It's not us. It's no human being. It's no human organization. It's God. He is the hope of the world. So let me encourage you, if you don't know God, if you, do not, if you have not been reconciled to God, let me implore you, as it said in that passage, to be reconciled with God, to start first with the alienation between you and God. That's the heart of the matter. That's the root of the problem. And then we can go out and deal with the alienation between us and others, the alienation with us and nature, all the other divisions out there. But it starts with you and God. British author and Christian G.K. Chesterton reportedly said this. I don't know if it's been verified or not. There was a newspaper in London that put out an inquiry to famous authors saying, what's wrong with the world today? And his answer was this. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. It's a great answer. Jesus put it a little differently, but I love how he put it when he said, you know, who are you to go and say, hey, let me take the beam out of, you know, or the speck out of your eye, you know? First take the beam out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your neighbor's eye. This morning, can I encourage you? And some of us need this encouragement to stop blaming everyone else, not because they're innocent, because they're not, no one is innocent, but to start with yourself this morning, to look in the mirror, to let God shine his light on you, And say, God, deal with my sin. Deal with what's in my heart. Deal with the ways I am rebelled against you. Deal with the ways that I fall short of the standard you've called me to. Deal with the iniquity, the brokenness in me. Give me a new heart, a new spirit. Lead me to a place of of confession and holiness. First and foremost, before I go out there and blame everything else and everyone else. How much of a better place would this world be if we all just started there instead, instead of just blaming everyone else for our problems? If you need to be made right with God, I want to just put up a prayer, and I encourage you to pray this along with me. Jesus, I believe that you are the Lord and Savior of this world, the only remedy for the sin and injustice of this world. I believe that in you is found eternal life, life to the full, I believe that apart from faith in you, I will die in my sins, separated from God for all eternity. But I believe that you love me so much that you died on the cross in my place, taking the penalty for my sin, that you rose from the grave, conquering death. I turn from my sinful, self-centered way of life, and I believe in you as my Savior and Lord. 